0: Amen. If you will open your in your copy of the scriptures to Zechariah chapter 13. We've been going through the book of Zechariah. If you're using a Pew Bible, there it's seven ninety nine. You will recall last week we went through chapter twelve and into chapter thirteen. Um, we saw the way in which God deals with His people through the one that was pierced, the Lord Jesus, who was pierced for the sin of His people, and He saves them, He converts them, He uh, uh, keeps them, and cleanses them. And Now today we're picking up in chapter 13 again. And Zechariah is going to have the same message only in this time it's a slightly different way. This time it's a poem, a short poem, self-contained. in between, in, in the middle of this oracle, here's this self-contained poem. And this poems going to vividly illustrate. Um, what you ought to expect. Because of one who was pierced, because of one who died, this is what the life of the people of God looked like. Because Jesus, and so church, because Jesus suffered and died and was pierced, this is what the Christian life looks like. I'm going to start reading in verse 7. Awake. O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish. One-third shall be left alive, but I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and tests them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Amen. Amen. Many times in our relationships... Certainly in our marriage relationships, when trouble comes up, a lot of times that trouble comes because of unrealistic expectations or unmet expectations. Uh, It's constantly going on, so we have to constantly examine, are my expectations accurate? Why is it that I feel my expectations are not being met? And so... In many ways, Zechariah's passage here is helping us establish and to look at what are your expectations by being in the family of God. You, who are God's children, what are your expectations as a believer, as a disciple? How should you live as a disciple? Well, Zechariah 13, 6-9 helps us. It helps us adjust our expectations so that we can be ready when the realities of life come, when the realities of the Christian life come, try, when trials come, how will I handle them and view them? Or when wonderful blessings come, how do I view them and handle them? The text has two major divisions. First one is just verse 7, right? You see, verse 7, the focus falls on the work of God's shepherd. He says, my shepherd. And then, verses 8 and 9, in light of the work of God's shepherd, here's what life's like for God's people. Here's what it looks like. So, let's look at verse 7, start off. The work, the work of God's shepherd, the work of Christ... Uh, the first word in Hebrew highlights this drama. The first word is sword. Sword. And that sword is personified, it's addressed, almost like the sword has a, a, a mind and will of its own. God says to this sword, Awake. Awake against my shepherd. God speaks to the sword, says, Awake against my shepherd. Strike him. Now we've met god's shepherd before right back in chapters 9 through 11 where that was the theme the lord is our shepherd that repeated phrase that uh, god is the shepherd of his people and we met him right and we know who he is john 10 verse 11 he's the jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep the lord jesus christ and here we learn that the shepherd messiah He is going to endure the sword. The sword. Well, what's that mean? The sword is shorthand, if you would, for justice. Judicial suffering. Judicial death being put to death. Notice here, and here's the shocking thing. It is God himself who calls for this awakening of the sword against his own shepherd. That's shocking, isn't it? That judicial punishment to fall on God's shepherd. It is God who calls for that. Even more astonishing, notice how this shepherd is described, second part of verse 7 there. He is the man who stands next to me. This shepherd is the one that the Lord... God can say stands next to me. That is, He's my peer, He's my uh, close relative, He's my companion, He's my associate, He's my equal. Now, who is equal with the Father? The Shepherd is the Lord's peer. He is the God-Man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully fully man, equal to the Father in glory. And the Lord says, remember Isaiah 53, the Lord lays upon him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It is the Lord who has put him to grief, Isaiah 53.10. It's baffling, isn't it? Here's the Lord's shepherd, and it is the Lord who directs the sword to strike him. Now, sometimes we find ourselves, and we're, maybe we're not very precise in our thinking when we start thinking about who God is. And we start, and we, we even put these divisions in our own head. Sometimes we don't do them intentionally. Sometimes it just forms over time. And we think, Jesus, I can really deal with, but God the Father, he's kind of aloof. Uh, I mean, if he loves us, maybe, he's being, maybe his arm's being twisted a little, if I can even use that. Maybe he has to be persuaded to love us. Maybe Jesus you can relate to, but the Father is unapproachable and distant, and uh, you're not even sure if he wants anything to do with you because you really know what you're like. Maybe you had an earthly father that was that way, and you've just associated those things with your earthly father to thinking about God the Father. Sort of aloof or distant or grudging, with his love. Yeah, he'll love you, but you're really going to have to put into it. But that's not what this text is teaching us, is it? This text says the cross is the Father's idea. The cross is there because it's the Father's idea. Remember the book of Acts? Um, Two two places. First, Acts, chapter 4, verses um, 25 to 28. This is, this is uh, um, um, when the believers are praying for boldness in proclaiming the truth of the gospel and about Jesus. Um, they've been commanded not to do that anymore, and so they're praying for boldness. Verse 25 says, who, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Spirit, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of earth set themselves against the rulers, uh, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So who who's responsible for killing Jesus? Well, you've got Herod and Pilate and all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel And then verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. It wasn't just Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Were they responsible for their sin? Yes. But it's also the plan of God, isn't it? The cross is the plan of God. That was Peter's message on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23. Um... When Peter is preaching, the Spirit comes and Peter is preaching says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Were they responsible for their murder of Jesus? Yes, lawless. You crucified. Was it also God's plan? And foreknowledge that the the shepherd would be struck? Yes. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God. So do not divide that in your head. Do not think Jesus really loves us and died for us, but the Father doesn't really love you. No, no, Jesus died because the Father loves you. That's why Jesus comes and dies. We ought never be able to read verse 7 without wondering and marveling and worshiping and praising the Lord. Because what a marvelous mystery it is, right? That the Father would ordain the Son to embrace the sword, this judicial death, that on the cross the love of God is displayed by Jesus' dying for your soul. It's a precious reminder, isn't it? This wonderful agreement and harmony between the Father and Son, co-equal shepherds, that their purpose in Christ's death was your redemption by the means of Calvary. We sing the song, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. I love the line, Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Not nails. Not a cat of nine tails. Not even thorns. That judicial punishment from the Father. Not for his sin, but for our sin. That's how much he loves you. But the great burden of this passage is not on the work of Christ. That's there in verse 7. But the great burden of this passage is great as the glimpses of the cross are there in verse 7. The great burden is... Okay, so what does that mean now? What, what does that uh, do? What effect does that have in, in light of the cross in the wake of striking the shepherd, what does it mean to be a sheep in the shepherd's fold? What's it mean? If Christ has died, what does it mean? What's the normal Christian life look like? And, and that's what the rest of the verses are going to help, help us with. Verses 8 and 9. It's what, what does it look like to live a Christian life? And there's four things that we're going to see. First off, I want you to see the reality of persecution. It's real. Expect it. The purpose of trials. So maybe you go through sore trials and difficult trials. There is purpose in those things, and we're going to see that uh, there in the first part of verse 9. Second part of verse 9, there is this promise of prayer. And then finally, and and this is the most glorious thing. Here's the, the peak of it all. Intimacy. In God's covenant. So let's just walk through those. So. Strike the shepherd. The sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. The whole land declares the Lord. Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish; One-third shall be left alive. When the shepherd is stricken, sheep scattered. Decimated even. Only a remnant remains. Only a third part is left. Jesus quotes this passage in Matthew 26 verse 31 about what's happening in his death. He predicts to his disciples, his arrest, his crucifixion. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night. And then he quotes Zechariah 13 verse 7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So that's what happens, isn't it? Even right away, Peter, remember Peter. Peter saying, no, 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 master. Everybody else might leave you, but I won't deny you. I, I wouldn't, I'll die before I leave you, Jesus. And then he does. He de- denies him. And then as Jesus is crucified, there's shame, there's disillusionment, there's a fear that comes on the disciples. Remember, they all head back and take, take up fishing again. They go back to their old jobs again. They all do that. After the resurrection, the disciples are restored. And then what happens? There's this hostility of the world. It was first turned against the shepherd, and now it's turned against the sheep. It's the scope of uh, hatred. And now they're scattered again. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Speaking about the persecution the church is facing, led by Saul of Tarsus. These believers in Jerusalem, Luke says that they, those believers, they're scattered throughout all the regions of Judea, Samaria, and he now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the hostility of the world comes uh, towards the rule of God, and then that hostility comes They hated Christ, and they killed him at the cross. And now that hostility is turned towards his followers. And yet we're told here, despite all the hostility of the world, God is going to save a remnant, isn't he? He's going to preserve some. A third is going to be left alive. The people of God, no matter how beleaguered or wearied or small their number, they're always remaining. They're bearing witness in the world, they're testimony to the grace of God in the gospel. So, as we adjust our expectations of what it means to be a Christian, what's a Christian life look like? You should expect on this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, The first great lesson Zechariah tells us, expect persecution. Expect it. Expect opposition. Expect the world to push back. If you try to be faithful to the master, the world is going to push back. This was Paul's message to the churches uh, that he planted in Lystra, in Iconium, in Antioch. So in Acts 14, verse 22, here's what Luke says. Uh, about Paul's ministry of discipleship in the churches. So, you know, he plants these churches, and then he goes back and he ministers among them. This is what Luke says. He went strengthening the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Like, oh, yeah, I'd love to have Paul come and encourage me to continue in the faith. But it sounds great. But then Luke gives us a summary of how Paul was doing this. Here's his actual message. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom. Now, You hear that like, whoa, many tribulations. I thought you were encouraging us. Well, no, no, Paul is not being gloomy. He's not being negative. But he is helping those churches. You get your expectations right. This is the nature of the Christian life. Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. This is... The shepherd is stricken, the sheep are scattered. John fifteen, verse twenty, Jesus said to He said, Remember, I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul writing to Timothy, All those who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Expect it. Second thing. What are the purpose of trials for a believer? So this remnant of God's people, they're going to pass through this crucible of suffering. They're going to pass through hardships. But those hardships, that suffering is not without purpose. Look at the language that's used here. It says, I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. So, if you expect sufferings as you follow the good shepherd, know this. Those sufferings are not pointless. They're not endless things. They're not empty. They're not meaningless. They have purpose. You might not always know that purpose. You might not ever in this life know the purpose. But you understand this. They do. And they're part of God's refining work in your life. Part of the secret weathering through these many tribulations through which you must pass in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have to interpret them correctly. What's going on? Why are these sufferings here? What's God doing through our sore afflictions? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, that's what he says. To those believers that are in Asia, Peter writes, uh, they're rejoicing in salvation. He writes, though now for a little while. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith would be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Christian, if you're going through trials, sufferings, hardships, Understand, you're in the refiner. You're in God's refinery. That is the Christian life. That is what tribulations do in our lives. We're in the refinery, and that refinery is burning off the dross so that what? Our faith in Jesus Christ might be found on that last day to the praise and glory and honor of him who's coming for us. That's what trials do. That's not a health, wealth, prosperity message. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will suffer. But those sufferings are not meaningless. This world is, there's not one bit of this world that's out of God's control. Those sufferings have purpose and meaning. Uh, Zechariah is teaching us to sing when through through fiery trials, your pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume, thy gold to refine. God's teaching us, trust me. When life's hard, trust me. Trust me. Lean on me. Trust the Lord. When nothing comforts, when there's no help, when everyone else is gone, you can trust the Lord. He's teaching us to trust in Him, even now. Third thing. You see this persecution? You see the purpose of trials? Look at prayer, the promise of prayer. This is, marks the Christian life. This marks what it is to be in the shepherd's flock. Not just suffering, but look at the second half of verse 9. They will call upon me, and I will answer them. Now, friends, there's passages in the Bible that's hard to understand. There's passages here in Zechariah that are very hard to understand, but this is not one of them, is it? You call upon the Lord, and he hears you. He hears you. He answers. He answers You will call on my name, and I will answer you. You follow Jesus in the valley of suffering and tribulation and trials, and he's refining you, and you're in that painful crucible of affliction, and you're clinging to the promises of God, and God says, call on me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you. Psalm 50, verse 15. Isaiah 65, verse 24, Before they call, I will answer, yet, while yet they are speaking, I will hear. Prayer is this. Yes, we go through these trials in this life, and God is refining us, but we're not left alone. He has given us this glorious provision in our suffering, and that's prayer. Prayer. So imagine, when your children are hurt, parents, when they get hurt or they're, they get in trouble or they're scared, and you're the first one they run to, right? Mommy! Mm. And they run. They want comfort. They want counsel. They want healing, support. And boy, if our kids were hurt and they went elsewhere to find that, it would hurt. How much more must it grieve the heart of Abba, Father? When in the depths of our trials we turn every other way except to Him. When He has said, Call on me, call on me, I will answer. So, friends, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Call on Him. And you're hurt. You know you double your hurt when you don't call on him. When you try to bear your trials on your own. Run to God. Run to God in prayer. Then the last thing, and probably the most staggering thing, is the intimacy of the covenant of God. So it's almost like we're climbing up. It starts off in this, man. So imagine we're going up a slope here. And we start off in this dark, the darkness and the shadow of death, the shadow of the cross, the sufferings of our Savior, the scattering of God's people. But those are not nearly as bleak as they first appear because the sufferings of God's people. They're actually this refining work that God is doing. He's teaching us to persevere and to cling to him. And he gives us this wonderful promise we climb a little higher out of the gloom. This wonderful promise is, call on me. You call on me, I will answer you. And then with that we get to the summit. We get to the top of this pit and the shadows all pass away, and now there's this pristine, glorious light of gospel truth, and that's the last part of verse 9. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, he is my God. Those words, friends, run across the whole course of the Bible. Those very words. That is the heart of God's covenant of grace. They appear the first time. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9. They're repeated again in Leviticus 26, verse 12. In the context of Moses receiving the law, uh, God's covenant with Moses and Israel. They're echoed again. Remember Ruth? um, um, When she's converted and she says to Naomi, Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Jeremiah he says, on the brink of Israel's judgment, they're about to go off into exile three times. Jeremiah, through Jeremiah, this promise of God's commitment to be their God and that they will be his people. It's repeated in Jeremiah 7, 23, Jeremiah eleven four, 4, and 30, 22. And then Ezekiel, in chapter 36, verse 28. And Ezekiel 36, you've got this glorious promise of the new covenant, the new covenant in which we live and we enjoy the blessings of God's grace. This same word occurs again. I will be your God, you will be my people. It describes the very heart of the relationship between God and sinners who are saved by grace. They are, if you like, these words are marriage vows. You know what marriage vows are. They're the commitment statement or the end of the marriage. You know, I present to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Well, this is Christ in his bride. This is God in his grace. He takes us. He takes us for his own to have and to hold from this day forth forevermore. And we take him to be our God. And like this marriage, these words speak to us of the intimacy and the union and the communion with Almighty God. And one day, there's going to be a great marriage supper. Right? Marriage supper of the Lamb. Where our bridegroom will come and come for his people. Flip with me to Revelation 21. Verse 3. What will eternity look like? What what marks it off? Well, new heavens and new earth. What's the declaration that's made? Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, is their God. I think that's the greatest lesson of all here in in Zechariah 13 in this passage. Uh, If you consider the Christian life, the most important adjustment to our expectations, this text is teaching, here's the principle, right? The principle blessing, the principle thing, the principle glory of being a Christian, of belonging to Christ's flock, of belonging to the shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. It's got nothing to do with gifts. It's got nothing to do with, with helps or answers to prayer. All, we enjoy all those things. But even better, the chief benefit, you get the giver. You don't just get the gift. You get the giver. You, you, you get the giver himself. You, you get more than the benefits of Christ. You get Christ. Christ is the glory. Christ is the great reward. God gives himself to you in the gospel. So you come along and you believe, you trust in Christ. You don't just get sins forgiven. You don't just get eternal life. You get God himself He is yours, and you are his forever and ever. God is the greatest gift. A lot of times, I think we as Christians in churches are like, you ever seen like the commercial with the whale watchers, and they're out off the coast of Washington or wherever, and they've all got their goggles up and, uh, something goofy happens. Somebody falls overboard and they all look over at that. And meanwhile, the big whale jumps out of the water and all of them miss it. They're looking at the wrong place. They're looking in the wrong direction. I think we like that. So when the luster has gone out of the Christian life, uh, in the context of your sufferings, you just can't take it anymore the trials in this life, and and you're looking for the benefits and the blessings, where are the blessings? Where is the healing? Why why am I not getting all my prayers answered? And, And you want your life to be beautified and you want your trials to be eased. I think you're looking in the wrong place. Our point of view The real gift is given to you. The glories of God that are given to you are not just the benefits, but it's God himself. God himself. So we look in the wrong place. The great gift of the gospel is not just that your sins are forgiven. It's God himself is your God. You get God to whom all blessings flow. And all praises belong. And that brings us all the way back, full circle, back to verse 7. You need proof? You need proof of the greatest gift of God's grace, the gift of God giving himself. Look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ, where the Father awakens the sword against his shepherd, the man who stands next to him, his peer. Here is God. In love, giving his son. His son given for you. That's the greatest gift, right? The greatest demonstration of the commitment of God to you. The marriage vow. The, to take you as his own. To give himself to you. The demonstration uh, that utterly depends. Dependably, the promise of the sweetness of the gospel is seen in the cross, isn't it? That Christ takes on flesh, takes death's sting. He's now glorified at the Father's right hand. And God is yours through faith. He is yours. Not just benefits. Him. Friends, are you missing the wonder of it? Are you looking at the wrong side and do you miss the beauty of what's there? God just doesn't give you benefits. He gives you himself. Himself. Maybe your expectations have been all wrong because all that you ever pray for or want or long for is less trial. Even those, those trials are God's refinery. Or, or maybe it, 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 it's you want ease in this life. No, there will be sore afflictions. And maybe when those trials come, you've gone other places. Well, God says, no, no, call on me. I will answer you. He will answer you. And he'll give himself to you. Has he given himself to you? Is that beautiful Mary say, is that yours? Can, Can you say, I am his and he is mine? Is that where we are? Well, let us, let us go to him. Let's cry to him. He hears us. And he's given us the most precious thing of all, himself. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we pray, we look to you. And trust in you. We thank you for the truth of your word. The, uh, the, the instruction that we have here. So Lord, I pray for those that are not believers. I pray even right now that they would look on Jesus who is pierced because of our sin. And through faith and trust and believing, may they come to him. And receive him as their own savior. Lord, teach us as your people to have right expectations, to not be surprised at persecution, to understand the purpose of suffering, to be calling out to you to to enjoy and to exercise this glorious privilege of prayer that is ours in Christ, and let us treasure, more than anything, the greatest treasure of all, you. You. And Lord, we long for that day when our faith becomes sight, when the clouds are rolled back and the the trump sounds and Christ descends. And uh, that glorious gift will no longer just be by faith. But on that day, we will be with you and we will be your people. And you will be with us as our God forever and ever. Amen.